when I choose my podcasts to listen to, of course it's about the content and delivery, but I'm also drawn to the visual concepts of some also. I'm always impressed with a catchy graphic or well-presented images, and I think to myself, how have you done that? Creating that can't have been easy. I must admit, I'm more about the writing and broadcasting than the visual side of things. I don't find that bit too simple. But it can be, because I discovered Canva for Teams, and with it, that stunning content that you see elsewhere can be your own in a creative and fun way. Because it allows you to design pretty much anything, from your own eye-catching social media posts and websites that you'd want to search through, right through to professionally designed business presentations that will bring hands together clapping and get you that deal you wanted, or documents that smack up off the page with the power of design. With Canva and its many branches that come with it, including Canva presentations, Canva docs, Canva whiteboards and Canva print, and the many premium templates, fonts, graphics and free library of videos and audio tracks at your disposal, You can turn the inspirations that you have into designs in absolutely no time and bring them to life on anything, from an image on a mug to a planet-friendly printed poster. It's easy to do. You'll find so many effects and features in Canva that you'll enjoy messing for hours on there. And with tools such as Magic Write that helps that first draft of something fast, or Magic Eraser that removes completely those unwanted details in your images and makes your chosen subject stand out, your creative process will go to new levels. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash TCE. That's C-A-N-V-E dot M-E slash T-C-E for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular trawl into those tales of true crime from the UK and Ireland that are off the beaten track, that are not done to death by umpteen shows, and that are curated by myself with the best intentions of bringing to you the exact type of content I would enjoy listening to myself. I find the unfamiliar and obscure much more interesting than another go-around on the Wests or some other Netflix popular bollocks, you know. The I bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved true crime enthusiast cat, Pigsy, is not here this time around, but only because he's fast asleep on my bed. And we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show go around. It is as fabulous as ever having you joining me in the peaks today, which I thank you kindly for on behalf of the both of us. And I do hope that as you have joined us today, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Now this episode is the last one from this month for me, as the final week of each month is traditionally now Patreon episode week, and so I shall be back on the regular show following that, but I've got no less shocking and sadder tale for you here shortly. On the subject of Patreon, big thanks go out here to both the returning and new supporters, with shout outs here to new friends Mark Pearson, Celeste White, Kimberly Durham, Heather Mitchell, Kathy Spearcock, Alex Morris, Tara Sansom and Kellyanne, 
plus Sarah Marshall, Pia Muller and Holly Fleming who have opted to annually support the show. You folks are all amazing. Thank you so kindly for doing so. And I hope that you've managed to make a start through the back catalogue of bonus tales that being a supporter brings you. If you're fancying an injection of extra enthusiast yourself and you want to be hearing tales such as The Bravo 2 Heroes, Home Invasion, Bring Out the Gimps or the latest snippets of The Strange and Stupid, then you can be on it quick as a flash and so easy that Lionel Rich T wrote a song about it. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the show there. Always remember that podcast suffix though. Or just use the link that is ever-present in the episode show notes and you can be hearing these and more quicker than a Met Police officer now clearing their WhatsApp messages out. Some wrong there, eh, or what? Show stuff has gone out for some. I know it's been a bit of a while for some too, but the posties are now only just getting over their backlog after the cyber attack. So I hope that it gets to you soonest. Fingers crossed, I really have. This time around then on The Enthusiast, we are off back to the early 1990s and to somewhere we've visited several times before over the years on the show, the county of Derbyshire in the East Midlands. More specifically, to a village in the south of the county, the picturesque village of Marston-on-Dove. It was here in 1993 that our tale this time around occurred, a truly savage and senseless crime and one of those that instills the most fear, and makes seem that more terrible amongst others. For this truly is a motiveless crime, hence the title of the episode. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode I've entitled Killing for Killing's Sake. For 35-year-old Debbie Buxton, life in April 1993 was pretty good, as pretty good as it could get really. She had a lovely home, had a happy and stable marriage, co-ran a business with her husband Ron that was doing well, and was well liked by her friends and neighbours in the small South Derbyshire village of Hatton, where she'd lived for the past couple of years. Originally from Batley in West Yorkshire, teacher's daughter Debbie had moved down to Derbyshire following leaving school in the late 1970s, and after finding employment in a secretarial position, in April 1978 had married a man named David Partridge, who adapted her surname and moved into a house in Derby's Duffield Road. By all accounts, the marriage was an unhappy one for a long time, and by 1986, when Debbie had begun working in Hatton as a secretary for a man named Ron Buxton, a chemist who ran a company using chemicals to restore antique books and parchments, of which he was considered an expert on, it was all but dead in the water. Ron and Debbie had hit it off immediately, soon working well together, and despite the 12 year age gap between them, he was 12 years her senior. Their relationship soon developed from a strictly professional one into a deeper, more personal one. Ron himself commented much later how they'd immediately gotten on well together and over time had confided in one another about their respective unhappy marriages. Now it's never specifically detailed that they began an affair 
but it is documented that around the same time in the late 1980s, both split from their respective spouses and had soon set up home together at Fern Cottage, a picturesque four-bedroom cottage at number three Derby Road in Hatton, just a mile and a half away from the Station Yard Industrial Estate where Ron ran his business from, Particle Technology Limited. By 1991, Debbie had moved from the secretarial position she held at Particle Technology into more of a co-director, frequently running the business if Ron was away, which was semi-regular, as in that demand were his skills. He would regularly fly to different European destinations to consult, and more often than not, seal deals for him to restore different texts. It was a harmonious working relationship that both enjoyed, making the business thrive and a lucrative one, and the home life together was even stronger. The lively and outgoing couple socialised lots and were involved in several aspects of middle-class village life. I'm sure you can imagine what I mean. The cricket club, the Etwall and Hilton Rotary Club, helping out with fates and charity events, that type of thing. Gaining them lots of friends in the process. It was the same year, on the 27th of April, that Ron and Debbie had married at Derby's Ashbourne Register Office a small affair that was followed by a lavish reception held at the Peveril of the Peak Hotel near Dovedale. And as they toasted the happy couple, all of their family and friends attending agreed that they really didn't look a couple more in love with one another. Indeed, even years later, friends of both still exclaimed the same thing. The one thing missing from their relationship, however, was a child. It had not happened for Debbie and her first husband David, and despite trying hard for it, it had not happened up to then for her and Ron either. Reportedly, her friends are consensual that this lack of being able to conceive was the only thing in Debbie's life that made her sad. Although she was undergoing regular fertility treatment at the time in the hopes of her and Ron becoming parents. Perhaps to compensate for this, Debbie had two Weimarana dogs named Ralph and Chips that she had had since puppies and that she doted upon, and being her pride and joy. And around her busy work and social life, loved nothing more than getting out and about with a pair on one of the several picturesque walks there are in the South Derbyshire area, for it is a beautiful part of the country, and clearing her head like only a nice countryside walk can do. It's exactly what Debbie was doing on the afternoon of Tuesday the 27th of April 1993, a special day for her and Ron as it was their second wedding anniversary, their cotton one for the pedantics out there. And unbeknownst to Ron, Debbie had booked a surprise wedding anniversary dinner for them that evening at the couple's favourite restaurant, the former Georgian era Brookhouse Inn in the village of Rolleston on Dove near Burton-on-Trent. Ron had at 7am the previous morning left the house early as he had a flight to catch to Paris from Birmingham airport to keep an appointment to examine some ancient texts there that needed restoring and was not expected back until about 7pm that Tuesday evening. So after a brief foray down to the office to tie up a few odds and ends that Monday once he'd gone and staying late to do so, the Tuesday was a day free for Debbie. Early that Tuesday morning then, she was up and had had a horse riding lesson from her friend, Nicola Bethel, a pastime she'd been doing for the past two years, 
during which she excitedly told Nicola about the couple's plans that evening and how she was going to surprise Ron with champagne for them to celebrate when he got home. Later that morning, Debbie visited the newsagent in Hatton to settle up her newspaper delivery bill and to collect the Dogs World magazine that the newsagent ordered in for her each month. Now as a brief aside here, are newspapers still delivered today? And if you subscribe to anything, can you still collect it from your local paper shop? Or does it all come through the door today? Everything I subscribe to comes straight through the door via the postie, so... Can you still wander into a paper shop and get what you want? Don't know. Once she'd finished here then, Debbie then visited the Metro supermarket on Hatton Station Road. It is in Nyssa today, and where she spent time selecting, but ultimately settled on a certain bottle of champagne for the couple to share later that evening, before heading home. At some point in the mid to late afternoon, and the time has never been specified, but it's most likely sometime between 3 and 4pm. Taking advantage of the bright weather that afternoon, Debbie decided to take Ralph and Chips on one of their favoured walks, a riverside trail in the nearby village of Marston-on-Dove that led towards the Eggington area. And so, loading the pair up into the back of her brown G-Reg Range Rover, set off to drive the mile and a half journey down to Marston Lane and to the start of their walk. About five minutes later, Debbie parked up in her usual spot, a lay-by on Marston Lane about 100 yards or so down from Dove Bridge, and set off to head onto the path on the nearest side of the bridge to her. A familiar figure, as dog walkers on regular routes become, Debbie was easily recognisable that afternoon, dressed in jeans, a navy blue sleeveless wax gilet, red and white long sleeve blouse, navy wellington boots and tan driving type leather gloves, and nodded or said hello to a couple of people she passed on her walk. Ralph and Chips off the leads and running free, and at one point even waved to farmer David Smith, who recognised Debbie from her two dogs even though he was in a tractor in a field on the opposite side of the river. Now. Although the walk Debbie had embarked on that afternoon is a picturesque one, it is somewhat lonely and remote, and after not a great distance, you cannot be seen or heard from the nearest road to it, Marston Lane, which is in itself remote and unpopulated. But it's daytime and you have your two dogs with you. With that, the last thing you would think about is your vulnerability, isn't it? Debbie's mind was filled with all I've described so far that afternoon as she walked, lost in her thoughts, her fertility treatment, her excitement at the second wedding anniversary to the man that she loved and who loved her equally back, and the celebrations they were to have that evening when Ron was home, when suddenly, on that bright April afternoon, she was attacked from behind. Debbie may have even seen or heard her attacker hurtling towards her at the last second, and perhaps even attempted to flee, that can't be ascertained. What can be though, is that she most likely didn't even have time to scream, before a heavy ball pain hammer struck her a crushing blow to the back of the head. The first of four such strikes, but this initial blow knocking her unconscious and to the floor. At the later post-mortem, Conducted by Professor Stephen James, 
it was ascertained that the initial blow had been struck with such ferocity that, aside from causing instant unconsciousness, it had in effect shattered Debbie's skull, and had she lived, would have left her with irreparable brain damage. But the onslaught had only just begun. The unconscious Debbie was then stabbed with a bladed object a minimum of some six and a half inches in length, a total of eleven times. Nine times to the rear of her body, and then twice to her front, where she'd rolled onto from the ferocity of the attack. One of the wounds had penetrated her heart, and perhaps thankfully, death would have been near instantaneous for her. Of the other ten blows, however, Seven of them were found to have been delivered with such force and fury that they had penetrated the entirety of her body. Horror beyond belief that that's the definition of a frenzied attack indeed, isn't it? It struck me as reminiscent of the Yorkshire Ripper in brutality certainly, but also even in method. Finished the onslaught, Debbie's killer then immediately fled the scene, and though he was seen running away from there by a farm worker, leaving behind that most frightening of violent crime, and that that is most difficult to solve, a murder with no motive whatsoever. For Debbie had not been robbed, her expensive jewellery and wristwatch were still on her person, as were her car keys, and nor was there evidence of any or even any attempted sexual attack, but Debbie's clothing had not even been remotely disturbed. As the lead officer investigating her murder, Detective Superintendent Ron McAllister was to remark later, it seemed to be killing for killing's sake. It was 6.25pm when another dog walker who used a nearby route on the opposite side of the River Dove, Patrick Rogers, out with his dog, Tag, spotted a prone figure lying in a field leading to the riverbank on the opposite side, and making his way to the nearest crossing point, made his way to where he'd spotted the figure, coming across two distressed Weimarana dogs in the process. When he got to the scene, one look at the figure in the field told Patrick that this wasn't someone who'd just lay down for a sleep, or had even taken ill. The blood-stained hair and dishevelled position the body lay in told him something much worse had happened. And as he made his way to raise the alarm, not many mobile phones around back in 1993, Patrick came across a local farmer, Dennis Archer, whom he breathlessly blurted his story out to, and who accompanied Patrick back to the scene to see for himself. As I'm sure that you would do if someone says, I've just found a body. You'd need to see it for yourself to process such a thing, wouldn't you? Once he had seen, Patrick and Dennis were then away back to raise the alarm properly to get the emergency services there. But before they could do, they were met by another person. A man innocently looking for his wife, Ron Buxton. Yes, indeed. Perhaps with it being their wedding anniversary in mind, Ron Buxton had tied up business as early as he could and had taken an earlier flight home from Paris that Tuesday, with all reports having him arriving home at about 5pm that evening. Getting home and finding his wife not home and nor their dogs, Ron wasn't unduly worried, 
because he knew Debbie's routine of regularly exercising the dogs of an afternoon. But as the minutes had ticked by and she failed to come home, Ron began to become concerned. He tried Debbie's mobile phone, which just rang out unanswered, and then tried calling several of her friends to see if she was with them, but with no success. So Ron decided to drive down to the riverbank, his wife's favourite venue of dog walk, expecting to meet Debbie there, on her way back from walking the dogs. His heart quickened when he spotted and parked next to her Range Rover, and so, making his way along the path both knew so well, asked the first people he came across if they'd seen his wife, and describing her. The first people Ron came across were Patrick Rogers and Dennis Archer who were themselves just on the way to raise the alarm, and with what must have been extra sinking dread for them, told Ron that they'd just discovered the body of a blonde woman a quarter of a mile away. You can't even begin to imagine, can you? How nightmarish must that have been? Ron described years later. I ran into a field and was met by two men. They told me they'd found a body and that it was Debbie. I carried on because I just had to see for myself. I just didn't want to believe it. I suppose I must have wanted it to be a mistake, although I must have known it was not. Yes, despite Patrick and Dennis's attempts to prevent him doing so, Ron made his way past them and went down to the scene, convinced that they must be mistaken. But one look at the scene before him confirmed his worst nightmare come true. His soulmate his beloved wife of two years, lay dead before him. In grief, shock, you name it, but as an automaton, Ron immediately made his way back and gathered together the couple's dogs, attempting to get them into his car as the first police officer arrived on the scene. That officer, Police Constable Jeff Fairall, described many years later, No amount of training could have prepared me for that day. I was the police officer covering that area, and as I made my way towards Marston, I remember thinking, I hope that the report from a man out walking his dog of a body lying in the field turns out to be someone who's perhaps just collapsed and needs help. Of course, this is not to be. Jeff continued. As the first officer at the scene, I met the man who'd reported it to the police. He pointed towards where he'd found Debbie down a lane about half a mile from the road, in a field alongside the riverbank. After blocking off the lane, I made my way along the riverbank and was met by the awful sight. Debbie's pair of dogs, which had refused to leave her, had just been milling around, and Mr Buxton was trying to get them in his car. I spoke to Mr Buxton, but I'm sure the events of that day must just be a blur. What I will never forget about that man is the dignity he showed as he, the only person who could control the dogs, loaded them into his car and we drove back along the lane. What inner strength that must have taken. I've never forgotten Ron's dignity and believe that not only should there be justice for Debbie, but also for Ron and his family. The same officer later describes Ron as slumped against his own car in a stunned silence, merely gazing out over the river. Tragically, the bottle of champagne that Debbie had bought with loving thoughts was also found still in the back of her Range Rover. 
possible to even begin to try and put yourself in such a situation, isn't it? As one elderly lady left flowers at the police cordon just the following day as a mark of respect, local woman Diana Fawkes summed up the fear that had struck the community upon news of Debbie's death, saying, I used to go down there in the fog and didn't think anything about it, but I wouldn't go down there again now. Another resident, who didn't wish to be named, said, the day after the murder, We are all sickened. What makes this worse is that the general feeling is that the killer must be local, living among us. You don't get people coming in from nowhere to a remote place like this and committing such a terrible crime. If the killer was indeed local, if he lived nearby, perhaps it would explain why he had killed and not been deterred by the presence of two dogs. Did he know they'd been raised from pups as show dogs, and as such, not trained as attack dogs? Did Debbie know a killer? Hunting for Debbie's killer then, on Wednesday the 28th of April, Detective Superintendent Ron McAllister heading the 50-person strong team operating from Cotton Lane Police Station in Derby, told the media, We are looking for the vicious killer of an innocent lady in what is a particularly nice area of countryside. This was a nasty attack, and there doesn't seem to be any obvious motive. Mrs Buxton may not have even seen her attacker. At this moment, it appears to be killing for killing's sake. As the murder investigation got underway, which was an incredibly fast-moving one, as I shall come to explain shortly, and was eventually to see 2,150 people interviewed, 1,158 homes visited, 500 vehicles traced, and everyone in the Rolleston and Marston-on-Dove areas interviewed, it was a case of these things panning out in the usual and standard ways. Aside from the full-on fugitive lot, you know, every in-house, outhouse, roadhouse, henhouse and doghouse being searched, and the full house-to-house lot going on, with a motiveless crime like this, where you can discount robbery and a sexual motive, it leaves a personal angle, and so the focus is very firmly on the victim's life. Plus, it was remarked upon that Ron Buxton was the third person on the scene, even ahead of police. And what are the chances of that? And so, Debbie's life was scrutinised with no stone left unturned. As was Ron's. He was immediately taken to the police station on suspicion of it being him responsible for a murder. But he was to show nothing but shock and grief for his wife's death. And indeed, his travel arrangements, when checked, were to rapidly rule him out of the investigation. Police also made tentative inquiries as to whether the latest killing of a female in broad daylight could be linked with any other, as then unsolved, some that still are, murders across the UK with a similar victimology and circumstance. Think Rachel McKell or Helen Fleet, a couple of names that we've met before on the show, as well as possible links to a couple of others that we shall meet in due course, I'm sure. However, Links to each of these cases were ultimately ruled out. I can see perfectly why a link would be examined due to the circumstance, particularly in the first example I gave, because something like this has Napa written all over it, doesn't it? But no, 
it was concluded that this was an entirely separate maniac at large. Cheery thought that, eh? Debbie's background, as we've said, was looked at to see if anything there could provide a hint for such a brutal murder. Someone with a grudge, a business rival, or possibly a secret lover. But there was nothing. Debbie was nothing but universally liked and was totally devoted to Ron. It seemed to police that they were dealing with what is usually that most difficult of crimes to solve, a stranger killing. However, the community, who were anxious to help due to the sucker punch they all felt at losing a friend and neighbour, and the pall of fear that hung over the area, responded well, and by just the Wednesday evening, police had a clear picture of an individual that had become the primary person of interest they wished to trace and eliminate. A man who had been seen hanging around the Marston-on-Dove area in the days leading up to, and on the day of the murder. The descriptions to emerge were unquestionably of the same person, a well-built white male in his late 20s to early 30s, having shoulder-length dark hair, blue eyes, sunken-cheeked and pockmarked skin, and wearing casual clothing consisting of dark-coloured jeans, a white shirt, a dark zip-up sweater and grubby white trainers. But there were two other consistent details that convinced police that this was the same person seen on respective days around the area. Firstly, several people who had spotted the man also described the fluorescent orange mountain bike that he was riding. And secondly, the man's behaviour was reported by several of the witnesses as strange or intimidating. Farm worker Mark Smith had seen the man three times on the Monday, a distinctive figure on his orange mountain bike, and had seen the same individual again the next day at about 4.30pm, although on this final time he'd seen him, the man had been on foot, and had deliberately ducked out of sight behind a brick building as Mark passed it, hiding his face from view. Another witness, an angler named John Anderson, recalled years later how the day before the murder, He'd been fishing on the River Dove at a spot near Marston Weir, on the opposite bank directly from where Debbie's body would be found the next day, when he saw this man, explaining, I saw this chap on a bike and he looked at a place. He had shears in his hand. I remember as he headed towards me, there was a big stick on the floor, and I nudged it with my foot and got it near me. I felt uneasy, and he made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. I kept watching him as I was so concerned as he looked wrong. He eventually went off and I saw him poke about in the bushes. I felt really uneasy in his presence. I felt actual fear with him being there. It was bizarre as he was just a person on a bike. John added that the shears would not usually cause alarm to him as the bushes around the riverbank tended to become overgrown. But this just set alarm bells off as some weirdo with a pair of shears riding around on an orange mountain bike would do, I suppose, wouldn't it? The same day, two elderly women, Margaret Asbury and Enid Woodward, were tending graves in Marston Cemetery when they became aware of a man watching them from the leech gate of the church, and like John Anderson, his presence instilled real fear in them. When they came to leave, they had to pass him and he further unnerved them by producing a belt from his pocket and holding it in front of him, making a loop with it. In fact, 
so unnerved were they by him that Margaret brandished the shears she'd been using in front of her, as if to say, I will defend myself and I'm not afraid to use these. He was still hanging around the churchyard later that afternoon, even though it had begun to rain, as he was remembered there by gravedigger Eric Morris, who had shouted to him, Get off home or you'll get wet through. The following day, the day of Debbie's murder, in the mid-morning, a woman named Catherine Weaverflack was walking along Church Road when she saw the same man cycling towards her, but then slow down and cycle past her at a snail's pace, staring at her menacingly. As he passed her, she turned to look back at him, only to find that he'd stopped and was staring at her over his shoulder creeping her out so much that she actually broke into a run, only stopping when she was amongst the safety of other people, although the man made no attempt to follow her. By 12.30pm, he was in the Spread Eagle pub on Church Road, where over the next hour, he drank about four pints of lager before leaving, unwilling to make conversation despite attempts from bar staff to do so. He had smiled at one woman in the pub, although she didn't know him, and later that afternoon, setting out for a walk with a friend, she saw the same man stood on Dove Bridge, his bike leaning up against the side of it. Another witness, a motorist named Richard Finn, who it transpired later knew the man, spotted him still there about 30 minutes later. As I mentioned a moment ago, Mark Smith then saw this man once again at about 4.30pm which is very likely very near to the time and location of Debbie's murder, and Mark's father David saw a similarly dressed man running away from the scene about an hour and a half before the body was discovered, having been on his tractor in an opposite field. The same man was back in the Spread Eagle pub again that day not long after 5pm, where he spent a good 10 minutes in the toilet there before quickly finishing his drink and leaving. So, a plethora of sightings there then, a strange individual who's sticking out like a sore thumb in the close-knit community. As we've said before, offenders tend to commit crime in a location that they feel comfortable in, that they know, that they can access and aggress easily enough, and so it was considered that this was an individual from the local area, and so once the description was out there to the media, police were hoping that someone could put these factors together and give them a name. Late that Wednesday afternoon, two people did, when the incident room received two calls giving the same name. The first was from a serving police officer in Burton-upon-Trent in East Staffordshire, who, after learning of the details of Debbie's murder, recalled a similar offence several years before, and passed the name of the individual responsible for that onto the investigating team. The second was from a 58-year-old printer named Ken Shipston, who in no uncertain terms told police, David Bond is the man you want. 27-year-old David Joseph Bond, who was born and raised in the Stretton area, had indeed come to the attention of police before, and a check of his whereabouts revealed that he was at the time unemployed and living with his mother and stepfather, June and David Wright at their home in Carnarvon Close in Stretton, less than three miles from the murder scene. So late that Wednesday afternoon, 
police went around there to speak to him, only to be told by his mother that he was out having his hair cut, which was unusual for him, she claimed, as he habitually wore it shoulder length. She also confirmed that he had a fluorescent orange mountain bike, and the officer's spidey senses are going off big time by now. When Bond arrived back home a few minutes later, his hair had been cut short, and when asked about his movements the previous day, he denied completely having been in the Marston on Dove area, claiming he'd been out elsewhere to look at a new mountain bike, and had arrived home at 5.30pm, which his mother confirmed. Taken in for further questioning, Bond was to change his story when faced with a sighting of him on Dove Bridge the previous day by Richard Finn, who was certain about this sighting as he'd known him since they'd attended the Forest of Needwood School together 12 years before, and Bond now admitted that he had been in the Marston area and had been in the Spread Eagle pub twice that day. He could not explain why he'd lied, however, he maintained this story about looking at a new mountain bike, completely denied involvement in Debbie's murder, claiming he wouldn't have been able to attack and then run away as he was suffering with a bad back, and that all of the other sightings I mentioned, which were clearly of the same person, and which the previous day he had fitted the description of to a T, Bond claimed the witnesses were mistaken. Police were so convinced they had Debbie's killer sat in front of them that on the 30th of April, they brought him before Derwent Street Magistrates to extend his custody period. At the same time as they were doing so, searches of the murder scene and surrounding areas had by then provided results. Several knives had been found during searches of several waterways and a stretch of the river, whilst a ballpain hammer marked with the initials PM and the name Dave etched into the centre of the head had been found in long grass a mere 15 yards from the murder scene. Surprisingly, none of these were concluded to be the murder weapons though, but what were concluded to be were discovered later that week, when on Thursday the 6th of May, police divers recovered another ballpaint hammer and half a pair of shears, the connecting bolt removed from them, in the river by Marston Weir. The other half of the shears was found in a storage shed in the grounds of Marston Churchyard, where the groundskeeper, when spoken to, confirmed that some days previously the shed had been broken into and several items taken, including this half of the shears and a hammer and, oddly, two belts. Bond had been wearing an identical belt to one of those stolen when he'd been arrested. Police had also discovered in a ditch on Craythorn Road, part of what would have been Bond's most logical route home from the Spread Eagle pub, a zip-up sweater that had a pair of black tights wrapped around it and a pair of cream and brown-coloured gloves, which were found to be spotted with blood inside and out. A bloodstain on the right thumbprint of the gloves was later found to match Debbie's blood group, whilst another spot inside the same glove was found to match Bond's, which was of a different group. Bond's stepfather was later to identify the sweater as belonging to Bond, and the gloves as a pair that he had given his stepson a couple of months previously. By this time, Bond had been charged with Debbie's murder, and when told he was being charged, on the evening of Sunday the 2nd of May, replied, 
I never fucking murdered nobody. The following morning, Ron and relatives of Debbie were in Derwent Street Magistrates Court to witness when Bond, wearing a V-neck t-shirt, jeans and a blue open neck shirt, appeared before presiding magistrates W.D. Phillips and A.E. Hill and stood silently in the dock throughout a 12-minute hearing, merely nodding when asked to confirm his name and address before being remanded in custody to await trial. With Bond remanded then, Debbie's funeral was held at Marston Church at 2pm on Tuesday the 25th of May 1993 where wreaths and floral tributes with messages of sympathy from far and wide adorned the church. In a packed service conducted by the Reverend David Heslop, that included a poignant address concerning Debbie's life and how she touched those she knew, bookended by chosen hymns Praise My Soul the King of Heaven and Lord of All Hopefulness, Debbie was then interred at Marston Churchyard. The simple black marble headstone read, Debbie Buxton, 20th of May 1957, 27th of April 1993. Treasured memories of Debbie Buxton, beloved wife of Ron and a dear daughter and sister. Now incidentally, a lasting tribute to Debbie, a series of watercolour pictures created from photographs of favoured places of hers on what would have been her final walk exists today on a set of hassocks in Marston Church. David Bond came to trial for the murder of Debbie Buxton on the 10th of May 1994 at Court No. 1 of Nottingham Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Richard Rougier, where he pleaded not guilty. Dressed in a denim shirt, jeans and a black t-shirt, sometimes sporting a denim jacket, his hair parted and neatly brushed back, Bond showed little emotion and looked completely relaxed throughout proceedings, even smiling at some of the evidence, as prosecuting counsel James Hunt Casey ran through the evidence that had placed him in the dock, telling the court that Bond lived nearby, it was an area he'd known all his life, and he'd been planning to attack a woman for at least two days prior to the murder, saying, we suggest this man had been lurking in this area for two days and there may well be a number of lone females who are very lucky. He intended to attack a lone female. When he did attack, it was a ferocious assault on a woman innocently walking her dogs. The only motive was the attack itself and that continued long after she'd been felled and was lying unconscious. There was no sexual attack, there was no theft her wristwatch and gold chain were all as she'd worn them. There were four blows to the head with a hammer. One of them fractured her skull and caused brain damage, which would have been fatal. After that fierce attack to the head, which rendered her unconscious, she'd been stabbed from the back with such force that of the eleven stabbing injuries, seven had gone right through her. A long heavy blade had gone through her clothing and in and out of her body. There was also a single stabbing at the front of her neck, done at the point of death where she'd been rolled over to the position where her body was found. Over the course of a ten-day trial, the jury of four women and eight men visited the murder scene and heard accounts from witnesses you've heard me describe to this point who had seen Bond in the Marston-on-Dove area on the day before and the day of Debbie's murder. 
several of whom had picked Bond out of a police lineup in the days following his arrest, as well as the pathologist's evidence and the other evidence that had cemented the prosecution case against him. The court heard that Bond had some days before stolen the hammer and shears used to kill Debbie and fashioned them into a weapon, and half a shears is a fearsome weapon too, indeed, isn't it? And had stashed them along the riverbank. They alleged he'd killed Debbie, a complete stranger to him as there was no connection discovered or even any suggestion that they'd known each other, had then thrown the murder weapons into the river dove, then fled back to the Spread Eagle pub and cleaned himself up in the toilet there before heading home, on the way disposing of the bloodstained sweater and gloves that he'd worn. When he'd arrived home, he got his mother to wash the clothes he'd been wearing, claiming they were grass-stained, had immediately showered, and then, after eating half a meal, had gone to bed early that evening. Police reportedly later checked the drain water from the washing machine at his mother's, tests upon which revealed the presence of blood in it. His clothing worn on the day of the murder, even after washing, was seized and shown to be still heavily grass-stained. The following day, Bond had uncharacteristically gone for his long hair cut short, and had arrived back from doing so minutes after police had arrived at his house to speak to him following two people calling in given his name and a school friend of his reporting seeing him on Dove Bridge the previous day. The court heard how he had initially completely denied being in the area, but had over time changed his story to admit that he'd been in the pub twice. From looking at his previous police record, which I shall come on to shortly, plus everything that pointed to him, his description, his lies about his movements, this had led to an extension of his detention, and then ultimately him being charged with Debbie's murder. The court then heard that following Bond being arrested, it was then that the items of clothing identified as his later were discovered during a search of his prospective and most likely route home on Craythorn Road. The sweater and the bloodstained gloves, with Mr Hunt saying, it goes without saying this is a desperately serious case and that the perpetrator of such an act as this is a very dangerous person. You may wonder what on earth a black pair of tights were doing wrapped around a jumper. You are not alone. They could, of course, be a very useful weapon. Depending on the situation and the opportunity, a pair of tights is a very useful weapon around a lone female's neck. Emphasising the significance of the bloodstains found on one of the gloves, Mr Hunt said, The two types were completely different. You may think that is something quite startling. With the defence offering no witnesses, Bond opted not to give evidence on his own behalf. Summing up on the 19th of May, John Milmo Casey, defending, told the court, if the prosecution has proved the charge against Bond, if the answer is yes, then so be it, he must take the consequences. But if the answer is no, they must accept the murder of Mrs Buxton is, for the time being, unsolved. The jury retired to consider their verdict the following day, Friday the 20th of May, and after four and a half hours deliberation, returned a majority verdict of guilty 
on what would have been Debbie Buxton's 37th birthday. Having found Bond guilty of murder, the court could now then hear of his previous criminal record and the offences that had caused the police officer and Ken Shipston to immediately consider Bond as a suspect and to call in naming him, which were detailed to the court by Detective Inspector Chuck Barton. Bond, who was born on a caravan park in Stretton on the 3rd of February 1966, was somewhat of a loner by nature. He wasn't a natural academic and was remembered from his school days for his disruptive, antisocial and downright nasty nature, frequently being in trouble for truanting, bullying and generally instilling fear in other pupils, as well as courting dislike for actions such as firing air pistols at cats that type of thing. His parents had separated when he was eight years old, later divorcing, and leaving him in a house with his mother and two older sisters, who were said to dominate him, Bond had over time developed an inability to form any meaningful relationships, and had nurtured a hatred of women. In 1981, aged 15, Bond appeared at Shrewsbury Crown Court and received a three-year supervision order after attacking a girl he'd gone to school with, Rosaline Eames, with an iron bar near the Monk's Bridge pub in Stretton, leaving her with head wounds that needed 37 stitches. On May the 3rd, 1985, Bond received five years youth custody, this time after being convicted at Derby Crown Court of assaults on three women that he'd followed and attacked in their homes in the Burton area. Jocelyn Corkhill, Helen King and Linda Wood. He'd called at his victims' houses and made an excuse to gain entry before viciously attacking them for the sake of committing violence, it seemed, as there was no apparent sexual or robbery motive for the attacks. Presiding Judge Brian Woods told him, You have some streak of aggressiveness which requires you to dominate defenceless and no doubt attractive young women. You went into their homes gripped them by the throat, slung them to the floor, and then literally booted them. It's quite unbearable that this should go on. Bond was released from this sentence early on October the 12th, 1987. Just three days later, two young women, 16-year-old Melanie Cantrell and 20-year-old Tina Shipston, were walking Tina's Airedale Terrier dogs through a tunnel under Trent Bridge in Nottingham when they became unnerved by a man following them and stopped to allow him to pass them, planning on abandoning their walk and heading back home once he had. Bond, for of course, this is who it was, did pass them, but then stopped and turned around, once again following them, and then viciously attacking them as they walked back along the riverbank. Punching Melanie hard in the face, knocking her unconscious to the floor. As Tina threw an umbrella at him to try and stave him off, he then attacked her, kicking her and stabbing her repeatedly in the body and face before running off. When Melanie regained consciousness, she hoisted Tina to her feet and together they staggered to a nearby boating club where the alarm was raised and first aid given. Now Melanie was left merely bruised and battered, but Tina had fared much worse, spending 10 days in hospital recovering from the assault. 
she had two broken ribs, had been stabbed seven times in the neck, left side and left arm, puncturing her left lung. Her face had been left with a lasting scar, and she required 17 stitches to a vicious slash wound across the left side of her body. Her parents, examining her coat, later found 37 separate stab wounds to it, bringing home what a frenzied attack this was, and how lucky she was to be alive. Tina described many years later how, following the attack, for many years she was left afraid to go out, so afraid that her family were forced to move home twice. She couldn't entertain having a boyfriend, and took five years before she could even begin to bring herself to undergo counselling to try and help her cope. Identified in court soon afterwards, again, there appeared to be no sexual motive and no attempt to steal, although Bond claimed he had attacked the women for their handbags, though neither was carrying one. He had also, like he was to less than six years later, displayed the same practice of getting his then-girlfriend to wash his clothes and having his hair cut short and dyed the day after the attack. Now amazingly, he was not charged with attempted murder here, but rather, the following year pleaded guilty at Nottingham Crown Court to a lesser charge of assault with intent to rob and causing grievous bodily harm for which he received an eight-year prison sentence. Now, following the attacks I've just mentioned, police had twice noted on Bond's criminal record, this man is a potential killer. But despite this, Bond was released early once again from this sentence, after serving less than five years, on February the 3rd, 1993. 11 weeks to the day after this, he had murdered Debbie Buxton. Debbie's family, Ron, and even Tina Shipston and her family were in court to see him found guilty of murder. Tears of relief left streaming down their faces. When the verdict was announced, Bond stood in the dock flanked by four dock officers and two policemen, screamed, I'm innocent, I've been set up by these bastards. Not chance you have, mate. Passing the mandatory life sentence upon him, Mr Justice Rougier told Bond, You've been found guilty of the most horrible murder, and there are very few words I can say which would express the disgust of everyone who has heard how that unfortunate woman came to meet her death. Having listened to the way she was killed, and what you have done to other women, it is quite obvious to me that for every moment you are free, no woman is free from danger or from fear. For that reason, I propose to recommend that you not be considered for release until you have served 40 years. Bond was then taken away to begin his sentence. Following the verdict, Detective Inspector Chuck Barton was quoted as saying, Justice has been done. Women are now free to walk the streets in safety again. That was not the case while Bond was at large. A very, very dangerous man is a danger no more. Ron Buxton, meanwhile, told the media, It would have been my wife's 37th birthday today. In her memory, this is the best thing that could have happened. 
I'm very relieved, and the 40 years is no more than he deserves. The verdict is a watershed for me. I can now begin to think about a normal life again. Ron also told how he still had the bottle of champagne Debbie had bought for them to celebrate their anniversary the previous year, explaining, It's difficult to know what to do with it, but I shall probably use it today. It's not a celebration, but it's the nearest I shall ever get. The trial has been a big problem because it brings it all back, but you've just got to struggle on. Debbie was always a practical person and would have said, Get on. She was an outgoing, friendly person, fun-loving and a very good businesswoman. I miss her so much. He killed her for the sake of killing. He carried on attacking long after she was dead. I think about that a lot. However, he added, We need a second trial now though, because the system has let us all down. What on earth are the parole board and social workers doing allowing a man who has attacked six women out to do it again? With his past history, he should have been jailed for life, or in a hospital like Broadmoor. He clearly has a mental problem, and wherever it is, it should have been recognised. I'm interested to know how these professionals managed to get away without taking responsibility for their actions. These people seem to be able to make very important decisions with apparently no redress. Previous victims of Bond also gave their opinion. Rosalind Eames, the schoolgirl he'd attacked in 1981, said, It took me years to get over the attack. He got a thrill out of hitting me and told police it was better than sex. I'm lucky to be alive because he nearly killed me. He should never have been allowed out to murder Mrs. Buxton. I always knew that one day he would kill someone. There's something mentally wrong with him. He hates women. Yes, hitting women is better than sex. Absolute monster or what? You just couldn't make some people up, could you? Tina Shipston, meanwhile, said... I knew Bond was responsible as soon as we heard about the murder. I ran upstairs and cried my heart out for hours. That man has wrecked my life. I'll carry the mental and physical scars forever. I can never forgive him, and I certainly don't have any sympathy for him. A life sentence is too good for him. Explaining the misplaced survivor's guilt she felt, Tina explained. I know it's illogical, but I can't help it. If he'd killed me, he would have been in prison and not have been released to kill her. He's so dangerous, I'm still scared of him. He should never have been released. I feel that I survived because I was able to fight him off. I'm convinced he wanted to kill me and finish me off. But because he couldn't find me, he went for Mrs Buxton instead. I kept having dreams that I was her and he was killing me. It was like I was floating above her and I could see it all happening. I could see him using a hammer, and yet I didn't find that out until later. Tina's father, Ken, who it transpired had previously written to the Home Office to complain when it was reported to the family that Bond had been released early from the sentence for attacking his daughter, and who had contacted police to offer Bond as a suspect in Debbie's murder, echoed his daughter's words, saying, I've never seen anyone cry so much. If someone can cry so much that they dry up, then Tina would have done so that night. I knew it was him. 
when he was released, I knew we'd do it again. He'd shown absolutely no remorse. If he'd been sentenced for attempted murder, then he would still be inside and Mrs Buxton would still be alive. I can't argue against that, and nor would I. Following Debbie's murder, in 1994 Ron set up the Debbie Buxton Memorial Fund, over the years raising thousands of pounds for local charities and victim support. The organisation that he claimed had pulled him through the dark times following the loss of his beloved wife. In December of 1994, he tragically returned from a business trip to find that he'd been burgled, and alongside electrical items that had been taken, as had Debbie's remaining jewellery, leading to him making an impassioned plea in the local press, saying, I'm particularly upset at losing the jewellery. They were items of sentimental value. They were not worth a tremendous amount of money, but it was all I had. I haven't got my wife anymore. I want to ask the people who took it to return it to me, or get it back to the police station. They can do what they like with the rest. Isn't it sad that, eh? It's not reported as to whether Ron got his jewellery back or not, though I'd imagine it was sadly unlikely. Putting his life back together as best he could with help from his friends, Ron was to receive another shock in 2002, when it was then reported to him that Bond's minimum tariff, set at 40 years in 1994, had been receded to 25 years, three years before that. It was done so following queries that Mr Justice Rougier had said one thing at recommending a 40-year minimum term in open court, but in a written report to the Home Office had specified 25 years, and so the minimum tariff was duly set at this. Speaking at the time, Ron told the BBC, I'm appalled, disgusted and just amazed. It's such a bizarre decision to have made. The judge was very clear in court that he wanted him put away for 40 years because this man was a hazard to all women, was a danger to all women and would simply repeat the offence. The following year then, the Burton Mail newspaper joined forces with Ron and led a lengthy tireless campaign to get Bond's 40-year sentence reinstated and justice for Debbie, garnering support from Debbie's family, her sister Nikki and parents Alan and Marion Lodge, numerous police officers involved in the case, local dignitaries, and then local MPs Mark Todd and Janet Dean. The campaign even gained backing from the original trial judge Sir Richard Rougier, who claimed that the report filed in 1994, in which he'd spoken about Bond's sentence, had been misunderstood with him explaining that he'd put the 25-year figure in answer to a hypothetical question of what Bond should serve had the judge not taken into account his history of similar offences, and he remained adamant that he'd recommended 40 years in the report, which he could produce a copy of to prove. Sir Richard also told BBC News, I felt there was a misunderstanding in the Home Office about what I'd considered should be served. Subject to any amazing alteration that may take place during his confinement in prison, I would consider almost any woman with which he came into contact to be in potential danger. I've been in correspondence with the Home Office to try to convince them that they've misread my views. I sentenced him to life imprisonment, 
and I recommended that he not be considered eligible for release for at least 40 years, when he would be an old man. Nothing has changed since then for me to change my views. He added that in all his years as counsel presiding over some of the worst criminals in British history, that Bond was without doubt the most sinister killer and threat to women he had ever put behind bars, for what he thought would be for good. Ultimately, the campaign saw more than 15,000 people sign a petition opposing Bond's reduced sentence, and which was delivered in person by Ron to then Home Secretary David Blunkett at the House of Commons. Though Lord Blunkett shared the concerns raised, a 2003 letter to MP Mark Todd read, in part, It is clear that this case has rightly caused much public concern, and the large petition demonstrates the strength of feeling aroused. I share that concern, and was equally outraged by the apparent discrepancy between the judge's recommendation and the tariffs set by ministers. After a further thorough examination of the legal position, I am extremely sorry to say that there is nothing I can do to change the tariff, and accordingly, it must remain 25 years. I always knew it would be difficult to change the current position, but further examination has confirmed that there is no power available to me to amend the tariff. I do want you to be reassured, however, that every possibility has been explored, and I have by no means simply accepted the status quo. I fully understand and share the concerns expressed about David Bond's dangerousness and the possibility of his release when his tariff expires after 25 years. However, I must reiterate that there would be no question of his release at the time if the parole board cannot be satisfied that he is safe for release. Without that assurance from the parole board, he would continue to serve his life sentence in custody, if necessary, until he dies. That's absolute shit, that. How much does that suck, eh? What the hell is wrong with people? Who decides that someone responsible for that, oh, just give him 25 years to the 40? Who decides that? Unbelievable. Now, more than one friend of Ron's has claimed later that however much he did try to move on with his life, and he did find a degree of happiness once again in later life with a new partner, Nancy, the legacy of Bond's horrific crime took its toll on him and was something that he could never fully get over. Following a lengthy illness, sadly, Ron passed away at the Royal Derby Hospital on Wednesday the 9th of October 2013 aged 67. He was later interred at Marston Church with his beloved Debbie, their memorial stone adapted to now read the edition. Also, Ronald Buxton, 26th of June 1946, the 9th of October 2013, reunited. It is perhaps some degree of comfort that Ron went to his grave knowing that Bond was still behind bars. However, with time served on remand, that minimum term was up in 2018. He applied for parole in April of that year, but was refused, and was allowed another attempt six months later, but this was again refused. 
It was a decision that was met with relief and support by several members of the Burton community who remembered Debbie's brutal death. A friend of hers, Kate Repton, said, I don't think he should ever have been released that first time, and I would love to meet the person who said he was fit for release because weeks later he murdered Debbie. He had a huge hatred for women which started when he was a boy, and it's a miracle the last woman he attacked before Debbie wasn't murdered as well. For the people to be waiting to find out every two years whether he will be back on the streets is terrifying. The fact that he's even being considered for parole is shocking, and I cannot bear to think about what he will do if he's released, or who could be his next victim. I don't like the thought of him ever coming out. Neither did former MP Mark Todd, who told the Burton Mail. David Bond was given a life sentence of 25 years as a minimum term. Now the parole board has to determine whether that person continues to be a risk to society, or in this case, especially to women, and if they've shown genuine remorse. I can only assume the judgement must have been made that he continues to be a risk and he doesn't express remorse, and if that is the case, then I very much welcome its decision. Bond targeted an innocent woman and his random killing causes particular alarm. He should not be let out if he continues to be a threat. The family were very involved with the process and I can only imagine what they're going through now. They must be thinking about this at the moment and they must be relieved that this horrible man is being kept inside. My thoughts go out to everyone affected by this, especially the family, because when these things come back around, they're the ones that have to relive that time of horror. In July 2021, Bond had his third parole review since his minimum tariff ended, and rather than ask for release, asked now to be moved to open prison conditions. However, this was again refused, with the report concerning the hearing and the collected evidence brought to it, stating, At the time of his offending, Mr. Bond felt resentment against other people and believed it was acceptable to hurt women and he'd been prepared to exert extreme violence and use weapons. He had a low opinion of himself and had problems maintaining relationships. He had also had difficulties managing extremes of emotion, including feelings of anger. He'd misused alcohol to help himself cope, but Mr. Bond had not solved life's problems well enough and he had not thought sufficiently about the consequences of his actions. Evidence at the hearing, which was attended by a parole panel, Bond, and his legal representative at the prison, heard that his behaviour earlier in his sentence had been poor, but he had changed course and had undertaken accredited programmes to address his decision-making, better ways of thinking, alcohol misuse, and tendency to use violence. The report continued. Witnesses were divided in their recommendations. The official supervising him in prison noted that Mr. Bond had engaged positively with interventions and could now be transferred safely to open conditions. The independent psychologist agreed. In this case, protective factors which would reduce the risk of reoffending were considered to be Mr. Bond's improved attitudes towards those in authority better coping skills, positive life goals, and a network of support. Both psychologists considered Mr. Bond's insight had improved, 
but the prison service witness was concerned that there remained aspects of his personality which Mr Bond would need to manage and that immediate transfer to open conditions might prove challenging. Mr Bond's probation officer could not recommend release on licence or transfer to open conditions but advised that progression to an intermediate prison regime may have benefits. Mr Bond himself stated that he was not yet ready for release and the management plan was still at an early stage. After considering the circumstances of his offending, the progress made while in custody and the other evidence presented at the hearing, given that key areas remained likely to be addressed, the panel considered that Mr Bond was appropriately located in custody where outstanding levels of risk could be addressed. The benefits of a move to open conditions at this time were considered by the panel to be limited and to be outweighed by the remaining risks that Mr Bond represents. The panel was not satisfied that Mr Bond was suitable for release, nor did the panel recommend to the Secretary of State that Mr Bond should be transferred to open prison. He will be eligible for another parole review in due course. Now 57 years old, Bond is expected to be eligible for another parole review later this year. I'll wrap the tale up here with two accounts that I would hope any parole board would seek out, as I've been able to discover, and take into account when considering whether or not to release David Bond the next time he appears before one. The first being a quote from a detective who worked on the Buxton murder, and who said, following news of Bond being refused parole, I think the news that Bond has been refused parole is excellent, but I'm not really surprised by the parole board's decision. I absolutely share residents' concerns about Bond's release. After one of his earlier attacks, he told police that hitting the woman gave him a bigger thrill than sex. He is a walking time bomb, and Mrs Buxton was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. He should never be released. The second is a poignant and heartfelt letter that Debbie's parents wrote as a public thank you that was published in the Burton Mail newspaper the month following Bond's conviction, and which reads as follows. This letter concerns the brutal murder of our daughter Debbie Buxton a year ago, and the subsequent trial of a killer held a month ago at Nottingham Crown Court. We would like to give belated thanks to all our friends in the Derby area who have helped us through this ordeal, with a very special thank you to the team of Derbyshire Police, led by Detective Inspector Chuck Burton. Not only have they been available and reassuring to us all since the time of the murder, and throughout the ordeal of the trial, but their patient and painstaking work has led to the rightful detention of our daughter's killer for a very long time. Even the judge, Mr Justice Rougier, praised the Derbyshire police for the presentation of evidence they'd built up over several months. We would like to mention particularly Detective Constable Mick Brackenbury for his constant support, care and advice to the family throughout the long months leading up to the trial. Our final thanks go to those witnesses who faced the ordeal of testifying in court for the prosecution not only for Debbie's sake, but for the sake of every other woman in the area who would have certainly faced the same fate if the murderer had been set free. As we now know, 
This man had been guilty not once, but several times in the past of violent attacks on women, leaving them scarred physically and emotionally for a very long time, perhaps forever. It has possibly been sheer chance that his previous victims lived, until he attacked our daughter. May we appeal to those do-gooders who allow violent attackers, potential killers, to be set loose upon the unwary public that they think very deeply before taking such an action. Next time, the victim may even be your wife, or daughter, or sister. Remarkable and courageous words from such a dignified family, and I was especially drawn to note that they couldn't even name Bond in that letter. Now, take the story you've heard and words such as these. The exasperations of Ron, as you've heard, the very real scars that Debbie's family are left with, or Tina, or Melanie, Roslyn, every woman he attacked, as you've heard, the support gathered to keep him inside for a minimum of 40 years, even the despair of the former Home Secretary and his powerlessness to prevent the reduction in Bond's sentence. Take all of that into account, and you tell me, is there a place in society for an individual who has caused so much loss and heartache such as Bond has? What do you think? An absolutely terrible and frightening crime, this one. A truly motiveless one, bar Bond simply wanting, perhaps needing to kill, regardless. For he only made half-hearted efforts to conceal his identity and paid no heed to the amount of people who had seen him around the area in the days leading up to the murder, who remembered him for his demeanour and his menacing actions, or no effort to keep a low profile and not be remembered. A fluorescent orange mountain bike and frightening old women with a belt kind of cancels all of that out. What can you say about David Bond that hasn't already been echoed throughout the countless comments I've brought you from those affected by his actions, and the many calls for him to be kept in prison, for that 40-year recommended sentence to be reinstated? Since 1981, this is an individual whose sole driving force, and the only notable thing he's done with his life, has been to attack women. Someone who viciously attacked a girl from his year in school? who blagged his way into random women's houses to brutally attack them with no motive other than violence for violence sake, and after serving time for this, was still so pent up with it as a driving force that just three days after his release, he'd gone up a level and attacked two women, seriously attempting to kill one of them. There is no dressing that up. How Bond was not charged with attempted murder for the attack on Tina alone is beyond me, hearing of the violence involved towards her and Melanie, and had he faced more serious charges for this, then what has been said you would hope would be true, then he would still have been imprisoned, and would not have been free to murder Debbie Buxton as he did in the most horrendous of ways. Saying that, had he not got life for attacking Tina, Whenever he would have been released, it would have proven irresistible for him not to do it once again. After all, he was quoted as saying that hitting a woman was better to him than sex, and it would be simply another random unfortunate woman we would be talking about here, rather than Debbie. 
but the preparation for it. Who removes a bolt from a pair of shears to make a fearsome looking weapon with it? That seems a different level again, doesn't it? Due to the victimology, Bond is the type of offender that would be a walk in as a good suspect for several unsolved cases throughout the UK. One of the dog walker slayings that I covered back in series 1 jumps right to the forefront of my mind. But of course, even though he is on paper such a perfect fit, Bond's movements can largely be pinpointed, for he spent the majority of the last 40 years imprisoned. And it brings us back to the reality that we know that there are other individuals such as this walking the streets. Scary thought indeed, that. I completely agree with and support what you've heard echoed throughout the latter part of the episode, because aside from that I don't believe David Bond is ever safe to be freed, I think his crimes are so heinous that he should never get that chance, and after serving 30 years and still being a Category A prisoner, it says a lot when the parole board won't even move him to open prison conditions. You have to think, if this is what has driven this guy throughout his life, attacking women being better than sex in his own words, and he's been denied the opportunity to do it for 30 years now, I wouldn't like to think that if he was released, he wouldn't ever again, because he must be champing at the bit too. This is a time bomb, this one, and should a petition to keep Bond inside once again be raised, it's certainly one I would sign, and I would throw the full weight of the show behind, because I don't believe beasts such as this can change. I don't think they would. I don't think they'd want to, if they enjoy killing for killing's sake. What do you think? I would love as ever hearing any thoughts and feedback you have on the tale of tragic Debbie Buxton in the episode Killing for Killing's Sake, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or as ever, you can find me through any of the show's social media links should you want to get in touch. It's Patreon episode week following this one, so I shall be back the week after with yet another tale of darkness, I'm sure. And I'm off now to crack right on with the next instalment then. I thank you so much for joining me in the peaks here today. I think you might have heard him. He did toddle in midway through the episode, having woken up. So you might have heard his little bell. And all that remains then for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times. And I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all. Stay safe. And goodbye for now.